Wessex LMCs supporting you and your practice. Welcome to our podcast. Here the questions asked to the panel on the webinar of the 19th of August are answered. Nigel Watson and Gareth Bryant are joined by Richard Roop. There's, there's still quite a lot of confusion about this conversion rate. Mm-hmm. Uh, would you like to explain this again? I mean, I, I think I understand. I understand what you're saying, but it's a bit counterintuitive. People think the conversion rate should be higher. Yeah, yeah. So the conversion rate is the proportion of the two-week wait referrals that convert into a cancer diagnosis. And that has been coming down pretty much every year for the last uh, 15 years. And that is regarded as a good thing. It is uh, well recognized that practices who refer more diagnose cancer earlier and they get a better outcome. Uh, If we cast the clocks back probably six, seven years, it was felt that a conversion rate of 10% was probably an appropriate level. And if you were lower than that, you were probably referring too many into the system. That has now been uh, reversed on the basis of research findings so that we know that a conversion rate target is probably a 5% level would be the best place to be. Uh, And we would just encourage you that if any patient does fulfill the criteria on the NG12 guidance, just follow it. Okay, the the National Cancer Diagnosis Audit last year um, is closing shortly. Is there any, um, is that going to be repeated um, in the future? Yeah, so there are hopes that that will continue. Uh, They're doing the data analysis uh, just pretty much as we speak. Uh, Huge uptake across the four nations, really encouraging. Uh, The last I heard, they have over 59,000 different cancer episodes to assess and evaluate. So the feedback coming from that will be amazing and there will be lots of learning to be taken from it. So yes, there is the hope that the NCDA will continue. There are discussions ongoing as to whether that will be every cancer site as it has been for this iteration or whether it will focus on specific cancer sites. Okay, thank you. That's really helpful. Um, I think that covers all the cancer questions. So thanks very much, Richard. A pleasure and uh, very welcome to help out whenever. So, okay, how do we stop private providers, employers, pharmacies, immunising lower priority patients when we have not enough vaccine to vaccinate the higher risk. So I guess that means not enough vaccine nationally to vaccinate the higher risk group, given the changing thresholds. So I don't think we, I mean, you can't stop the people if they've ordered the vaccine. And certainly there is, there are some discussion about the pharmacies who can charge some patients, whether the 50 to 65 year olds not in at-risk groups will go to pharmacies earlier. Certainly what's being asked of general practice is to wait until Uh, some announcement in September but they'll look at the uptake in November and then release some more vaccine to do the those that group the 50 to 65 year olds so I don't think they can stop people doing it Um, all we know is that the government has procured significantly more additional vaccine which will be released later on I think the September deadline is also a decision as to whether that will be supplied to practices centrally or whether the pharmaceutical companies that produce the flu vaccines will make it available. So I think it's yeah. a case of another one of those things, watch this space. Yeah, I think so. I think that's right. Um, there's a few questions about the portal, the national portal for PPE and the problems that that's been causing around um, 
stereotyping nurses into medium gloves, not being able to get the PPE that they need and the limit to the amount of order. Any news on, on what might be happening with that prior to the flu campaign or have we got to wait for that? Um, there is. I mean, I think, you know, the, the first push was to get everybody registered on the portal because about 50% of practices weren't. I think those comments are sort of helpful for us because we can feed that back. Um, yeah. Clearly, the portal needs to be up and running and to be um, efficient um, and not um, prejudge who, what groups are going to need what. It is also, I, I believe, uh, you know, to, to have a practice of 2,000 allocated the same amount of PP as one of 30,000 is, is plainly ridiculous. And that, that is being resolved, I gather. Um, I think some practices have asked about whether they should stockpile PPE now ready for the flu campaign. And it really does um, fall on whether, you know, if you take Hampshire of a population of 2 million and we're going to vaccinate half the people. So that's a million sets of gloves and aprons going into landfill if we don't sort this out. So I'm hoping over the next few days we'll get clarity on exactly what PPE we will need not only to save the environment, but actually do it safely and um, actually look at the time. So I think we'll wait and see. Uh, but, you know, just for people to be assured that we are pushing on that point. Yeah, and our advice is that we people should follow the PPE guidance as issued yeah. at the moment until there is um, a refresh of the guidance, if that is going to happen. Yes. Okay. Um, couple of questions about workload. We're seeing more work in e-consults and patients writing to us rather than telephone or face-to-face. -face. I'm therefore doing hidden consults after hours. Any suggestions to help with this? I mean, I think, yeah, it's a real problem because patients are, are being forced to, to use other ways of, of gaining access. I mean, what we, were, what we were hoping is that we'd have a range of um, ways that patients could contact us. So e-consult telephone using video consultation and face-to-face. -face. Um, some practices um, have found that e-consult, particularly over night and weekend, come, you know, they can come in on a Monday morning and have 50 e-consults, which then floods them. So it's trying to manage this um, reasonably. Uh, and you know, it is difficult where we hear that you know, patients are complaining that they can't get through to their practice because of the amount of phone calls that we're doing or that the perception is that the practice is closed because the doors are locked because we're doing total triage. So I don't think there's an easy answer here. It, it is a case of trying to provide the best service we can within the resources that we've got available. Um, and I think you know, trying to encourage people to, to use each of those appropriately and trying not to um, be too restrictive, um, you know, particularly the low levels of COVID we've got at the moment, we do need to look at what's proportionate to the risk that we've got. Mm. I don't think there's an easy answer. And as we said earlier, you know, I think every single practice is reporting that workload is going up. And I think some of that is catching up on people who were fearful to come in pre-COVID or people that have had two or three video consultations and actually they now want a face-to-face. -face. Yeah. So the perception is patients are, we're really supportive uh, early on and we're very accepting of a change. And now, you know, the practices are reporting more face-to-face -face and more demands for that. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that's certainly been my experience too, that the, the sort of tolerance 
for the difficulties is wearing thin with some patients and they're, they're um, getting more fractious about not being able to get what they, what they perceive they need. Um, so a bit about health checks. Um, one question also concerned about restarting health checks where there is insistence we have to include a blood test, but our phlebotomists are already maxed out. Um, I guess because of reduced capacity due to social distancing and and um, health uh, infection risk. So, and then also alongside that is if we are prioritised prioritised out time to target the most at risk, do we have to restart health checks? And I think the answer is if we're going to restart health checks, we should maybe be starting to prioritise those health checks. And we're negotiating with one council about uh, maintaining the funding for those health checks but allowing us to prioritise the patients who receive them, because clearly some of those patients who fulfil the need to have a health check are at the most in the most at-risk groups for COVID. So there is logic in doing that. Certainly, um, the phlebotomy issue is a real one, because as we're restarting our services and trying to look after the, the, the long-term conditions that we've missed out on in the first months of the year, then clearly capacity in, in primary care phlebotomy is, is, um, is going to be, is going to be uh, stretched. So again, I don't think there's an easy answer to that really, um, other other than saying, you know, think about prioritising the health checks that you do. Yeah, I'd agree with that entirely. I think, um, you know, the health checks uh, are not compulsory. They're something that we offer, but we do get funded for it. So it's this balance. I mean, you'll hear over the next few months, and it's already happening, the term health inequalities all the time. And, you know, one of the risks and probably COVID has driven the disparity about health inequalities further where um, the, the more affluent will access things more quickly and be use up more resources and the harder to reach are the ones who suffer from the health inequality so I would agree with you I think if practices do it prioritize on the looking at health inequalities but also there is a balance here you know you can you can only do what you can do and doing some of the um, ordinary phlebotomy service that we need um, is essential to the health of our population. Whereas, um, you know, you, you would prioritise this above the health checks. I know some practices don't want to lose the income um, and have uh, extended the phlebotomy services they've got, but that's yeah. only if you've got the capacity to do that and you've got the pickups and all the other logistical problems that go with it. Um, yeah. So I agree with you. There's no easy answer to that. Okay, and then uh, finally, a question about the CCAS. So, can you please clarify how CCAS should be direct booking? We have had examples of patients being told to present at practices and turning up, or patients have been assured they would be called at a specific time and being booked in to our clinics at one thirty a.m. when out of hours should should have been should have dealt with. So that sounds like a bit of a mess. So it is absolutely clear the CCAS service or the COVID clinical advisory service. And there, is, there are more GPs being used in the 111 service. They um, have act, this is the one in 500 and one in 3,000. But what they can do is um, book into a slot in a practice. So we've been very clear that they're not booked to a direct, they're not booking into a face to face appointment. What they should be doing is booking into the practice so the practice can then contact the patient and direct them to the most appropriate service that that practice offers. Um, so A, they shouldn't be told to turn up to the, sur to the surgery. They shouldn't be given a time to turn up. If they're booked in, they should say they'll be contacted by the practice in a timely fashion, but it shouldn't be any more than that. 
Yeah, yeah I agree. I agree. And uh, my, my understanding is that in a lot of areas, the CCAS utilization of a GP appointments is very low. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's nowhere near the one in 3,000, let alone, the, you know, the one in 500 has, um, was stepped up because of the fear of secondary care and primary care being um, overrun with COVID. Yeah. Okay. I think okay. that's it. I think that's uh, most of the questions answered. Wessex LMCs, supporting you and your practice.